The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. We've got an interesting lesson. I'm going to pause in our study of the Gospel of John, and we're going to cover what I consider to be the greatest New Year's verses in the whole Bible. The verses for starting out a new season of life, the verses for starting out a new uh, year on our calendar. And it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Butch and I did not coordinate, but the verse that he had us all say was 12, 1. I'm going to teach it to you this morning. Hopefully you can keep your notes and you'll get some insight on why I picked this as our new year and new start lesson. Next week we'll pick up with John chapter 18. We're going to continue our study there and I think you're going to enjoy it. But this Sunday we're going to do a special lesson on New Year's. It fascinates me that most New Year's resolutions fall into the category of self-improvement or self-help. I don't like New Year's resolutions. I'm all about changing ourselves, reforming ourselves, being better. There's just something artificial to me about, oh, on this particular day, I'm going to suddenly have this new push to have self-improvement. It's the reason why when I go to the gym all year long, I get annoyed in January when a ton of people show up that normally aren't in my gym. Uh, all kinds of people that are out jogging or riding their bikes and all the kind of things that I'll do all year long annoy me when they start doing the first two or three weeks of January till they lose their resolution, go back to their lives and give me my gym back and give me my bike trails back. But for most of the world, the perception of the New Year's resolution is all about self-improvement. It is interesting then as a Christian, I've wondered for years, should Christians make New Year's resolutions? And if you are, what should our New Year's resolutions be as a Christian? I can tell you there's no biblical mandate for it. There's no Christian history mandate for it. The bottom line is, if you feel good having a New Year's resolution, have at it. Not my thing, but if it's your thing, God bless you, go for it. I'm going to give you some insight today on how that resolution ought to be focused. Because it's very different than the 96% of the world that's in the self-improvement mode of just saying, I will this to be better, I will that to be better, I'm going to be better, and they just kind of make it a matter of self-help and self-improvement. The fascinating thing to me is that Christians on this subject usually ask the wrong question. Because most Christians, in fact, most people in general, in approaching the idea of new year, new season, new time of life, will say to themselves, What do I want to make better about myself? You know, I want to, as I put up on the little screen earlier, you know, want to lose weight. I want to eat better. I want to exercise more. I want to do all these self-help things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about losing weight. I'm all about better physical health. I'm all about better relationships. I'm all about every aspect of life improving. The question is, as a Christian, what's the right approach? Is the right approach, pull yourself up by your bootstraps because some higher power is going to give you motivation and a cheering section to go do it? Or is it truly transformative in a matter of yielding? Coming out of the Christmas season, the slide I'm going to put up can be is a little bit more uh, meaningful to us because we all understand coming through the Christmas season how wonderful it is to give, how wonderful it is to get. We like getting presents. We like giving presents. 
The question of the morning is framed around the idea, are you approaching your new year, your new season, your new time of life, by what you can get from God or what you can give to God? I want to jump to the bottom of the lesson. I'm going to jump to the very end. The answer is, what do we give to God? And the problem with the self-improvement, self-help model of Christianity is most people approach a new season, a new year, a new time of life about what am I going to get from God? Is God going to give me the extra motivation to lose that weight? Is God going to give me the extra motivation to exercise? Is God going to give me the extra motivation to do whatever I want to do to improve? Is God going to bless a relationship? Is God going to bless a job? Is God going to bless a house, selling or buying or whatever you want to do? All of those things are focused on gimme, 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 and there's no biblical mandate that justifies that kind of approach to God. The biblical mandate is to give to God and then see what happens after that. Let me jump to one of the most important passages on this topic in the entire Bible. Uh, Normally, this would be my conclusion. I'm starting with my conclusion. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16 says, Though Jesus, or through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. What is that? It says, The fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others for which such sacrifices God is pleased. So the question is, as framed by Hebrews, of how we're supposed to approach a new season, a new year, a new time of life, a new phase that we're going through, is what's up on the screen in Hebrews 13. It's supposed to be undergirded by a sacrifice of praise as seen by doing good and sharing with others. I'm going to apply that at the end of the lesson in a very tangible way. I'm going to hopefully motivate you to think about how how you're going to do that because everybody here now has a branch point. The branch point is for some using different spiritual gifts, for some different opportunities God gives you. There's different ways we all branch out. On this particular application, it differs for every single one of us. But what is common for all of us is how Jesus summarized this as he describes the first commandment. What Jesus described is the most important commandment from God in the entire Bible. We have it in Matthew 22, 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Romans 12 is simply an application of what Jesus taught in Matthew 22. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, he is essentially taking what Paul says in verse 12, and Paul's going deeper. Jesus gave us the Reader's Digest version. Paul gave us a little deeper version. We're going to look at it in Romans 12 and apply it as it gets back to this idea in Romans, or sorry, in Hebrews chapter 13. How do I apply that in my life? How do I apply this issue of praising God as seen by doing good and helping others, serving others? I'll apply that for you as we work through Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 starts by saying, therefore, brothers, or you can say brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, and then he goes on. I got to stop because of what my dad taught me about this word. I heard my dad say a thousand times, if the Bible says therefore, you got to ask, what is it therefore? And the reason it is there in our Bible is because of what's in the prior chapter on Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 uh, through 36. And I'm particularly going to show you 33 through 36. The reason I'm showing you this is because if you study the very end of chapter 11, as you transition into this great verse for the new year, 
Paul says, therefore, and then goes into what he's going to say. Well, if he's saying therefore, there's a reason. And the reason is starting a new season of life. We have no idea what's coming over the horizon. We've got our wish list. We've got our aspirations. We've got our desires. At the start of every year, we are optimistic. We're encouraged. It's a new time of life. It's a new season. And we think all great things for it. And we get a wish list for what we want the new year to be like. I start with this, therefore, from Romans chapter 11 by saying we can't know the future. Therefore, we got to live what's in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 say, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. In other words, there's a whole bunch of wisdom and knowledge God has we don't have. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths, you could say for us, his paths for us beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor, who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's Paul's doxology on Romans 1 through 11. And he basically says, no matter how much you aspire for the future, no matter how much you dream for the future, no matter how much you plan out for the future, we can't know it. Just look back to where we were 12 months ago today. 12 months ago today, the start of 2021, we all had ideas, aspirations, you look back at your year and like me, it did not veer down the path you thought it was going to go down. Sometimes there's blessing. Sometimes there's things you don't anticipate. Sometimes there's loss. Sometimes there's gain. There's all kinds of different issues. The point is stop trying to predict the future and then set resolutions to guide the path that you want God to take you down. So the doxology says... God's plans, God's knowledge, God's wisdom is beyond our comprehension. Stop trying to figure out the future. Live where you are today. So with that background, he says, in light of that, by the mercies of God. Sounds pretty simple. Let me digress real quick on the idea of mercies, because mercies now sets the stage. I can't know the future. Only God knows the future. I just got to live in the present in light of God's mercies, what's the difference? Mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. Grace is blessing us despite the fact we don't deserve it. Mercy is deliverance from judgment. Grace is extending kindness to those who are unworthy. So if I talk about the mercies of God, I'm talking about the dual sides of the coin or the dual sides of the idea of grace and mercy. The mercies of God is him withholding what we do deserve and giving us what we don't deserve. Great little verse from Romans 9, 16. So it is not of him who wills, nor him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So what Paul is saying here is the future we want, the plans we want fulfilled, are not a matter of our will, of me saying, I will it, therefore it's going to happen. It's not a matter of our diligence of how hard I'm going to work for that. It's a matter of God's giftedness to us from his mercy of that which I don't deserve, which is his judgment, and that which I don't deserve is his blessing, and that's grace. You want to cross-reference. Cross-reference is Psalm 103.8. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious. It's both sides of the coin or the idea I just talked about. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the best verse I could find in the whole Bible on this idea from Romans 12:1 of therefore because of the mercies of God. The mercies of God capturing withholding of judgment, giving of blessing, giving of love. It's this idea that I don't know the future, but I've got a God who loves me enough to withhold judgment and give me blessing I don't deserve. So I've got a God on my side. I've got a God who's knowledgeable beyond my knowledge, wise beyond my wisdom, knows the future that I can never know and we can never know. And he loves me and he wants the best for me. Now, it doesn't mean he wants to give me my wish list. doesn't mean he wants to be my genie in the bottle, but it means he's got a will. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. It's up to me and you to figure it out. Other great cross-reference, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it's more this idea, this dual idea of mercy and grace, and we're going to approach him in order to find out how to do this. Now, how do we do this? It says in the second half of Romans 2, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the New Year's verse, the new season of life verse, is not your self-help plan of personal transformation. I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do that better. Paul says our time of transition is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, let me give you some word etymology and let me give you some Bible application. The word etymology here on present in Greek is the exact same Greek word for how they would lay down an offering at the temple. How they would lay down a lamb or a dove or a ram or something else uh, that would be to present it to God as a sacrifice. Our Greek word there uh, is one of presenting or giving and just yielding. I'm just turning it over to you. I'm not coming in with a certain plan. I'm not coming with a certain idea. I'm just giving to you. So when it says I'm going to give, it's going to give as a living sacrifice. So if I'm just going to give to God myself as a living sacrifice, what's it talking about? Well, the opposite of living sacrifice is a dead sacrifice. And understand up front, God is not calling anyone to die. Jesus already did that for you and I. That is not required. There's one living sacrifice or dead sacrifice required. Jesus met it. The living sacrifice is what we do short of death. Short of him calling us into heaven, what are we going to do? Let me give you some application. Application comes first from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought for a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, there's an application here that kind of touches real briefly on this idea of New Year's resolutions and self-help. If my body's a temple of God, I should not put junk into it. If my body's a temple of God, I ought to take care of it as a steward of him. I need to be healthy. I need to go to the doctor. I need to do all that I can do to be healthy and fit and everything else I'm supposed to do to have a temple, an earthly temple, that honors God, as opposed to mocks God due to excess or mocks God due to a lack of control. 
So if I'm going to have a body that's going to honor God, I've got to have some aspect of self-control. But the point here is living sacrifice. So what does living sacrifice mean? The greatest illustration in the Bible of a living sacrifice is not Isaac on the, the, the altar. It's Abraham. Abraham was called to offer his son Isaac. Most of you know the story. He did not have to offer him. The angel of the Lord's behind him. He says, hold the knife back. Don't sacrifice him. And they get up and they make an offering and they sacrifice, they sacrifice the ram that's in the bushes to God. But the point of the living sacrifice is Abraham. And the gospel or the book of Hebrews tells us that his righteousness was reckoned to him. His righteousness was recognized by God. Because mentally he had already sacrificed his son. He was the living sacrifice. He says, God, I'm willing to give up that which I treasure the most. I'm willing to give up my son. And the book of Hebrews says it was as if he had already done it. He was that committed to do it because it says he was convinced God, after the sacrifice, was powerful enough to raise Isaac from death. So Isaac says that was his righteousness. The point for us is, as a living sacrifice, it's someone willing to give up that which we value the most. So a living sacrifice means I'm still alive, I'm still serving God, I'm still functioning, but I'm going to give up that which I treasure the most. Now, this is really, really, really hard because it requires us to take that which we truly treasure, which for most of us starts with our immediate family, our kids. For some of you, your grandkids. For some of you, your jobs. For some of you, just different things that you really, really treasure, like a, a spiritual gift. And it requires you to say, God, I am willing to sacrifice that to you. You can take them into ministry. You can take them into whatever profession you want to take them into. You can take them into whatever season of life you want to take them into. You can take my gift and do whatever you want to with it. But it requires a sacrifice. When I look back at my personal life and I say, God, I'm sacrificing this to you. Every single time I have done that, it has been the most transformative moment of my life. And I could pause here and take five or ten minutes and tell you parts of my life story. But it took me sacrificing my law practice before God ever opened the door for me to teach Bible. I had to say, God, if you want me to be a missionary, I'll be a missionary. Or worse yet, if you want me to be a pastor, I'll be a pastor. I had to be willing to sacrifice that which I treasured the most, my legal occupation, and say, God, if you want that, you can have it. I'll sacrifice it to you. I discovered God did not want me to sacrifice those things. He wanted me, like Abraham, to offer it up and genuinely be willing to get rid of that so greater things could happen, but I'm still a lawyer today, and as far as I know, I'm going to be a lawyer for all of my life. But God used that sacrifice to open doors to teach you and other people Bible. The same thing's true with you, whether it's a kid, occupation, vocation, whatever it may be. Until you're willing to sacrifice, God will not bless you with those things you want to be blessed with. Back to our Bible verse. It says, after he says, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. We know what that means. Holy and pleasing to God. Now, you just, if you're doing your own Bible study, you read through that, you just fly through it and you go, Holy, I got it. Pleasing, I got it. Let's move on. 
what we frequently miss in our drive-by Bible study is the significance of the, very, the, the words in the text. Holy and pleasing are different things, otherwise we just have one word. The conjunction has significance. I got to be holy and I got to be pleasing to God. Holy means different. It means set aside. So whatever my sacrifice is, it is not what the rest of the world is doing. It's not self-help. It's not get fit. It's not exercise more. It's not eat better. It's not do whatever. Holy means it's different than the rest of the world. For me in my illustration, it's saying, God, you can have my law profession. The rest of the world runs to a law profession. Chris Martin's running away from a law profession. That's the idea of holy. It's separated. It's consecrated. It's separated. Pleasing means it's not what I want. It's what God wants. Now, in verse 2, he's going to tell us how to figure that out. Here, he's just introducing the idea. So I got to be holy. I got to be separate from the rest of the world. And it's got to be what God wants me to do. Meaning, I got to figure out, does he want me to sacrifice something? Does he want me to do something? Does he want me to go somewhere? Does he want me to have some path that I've not been on so far? We'll figure that out in verse 2. And then it says, this is your spiritual worship. Just like in Romans chapter, sorry, Hebrews chapter 13, he's telling us this is the aspect of our worship. It's in our praise, it's in our words, and it's in our action. So if it's my action that's holy and pleasing to God, how do I apply it? Let me give you some life lessons before I go to verse 2. Life lesson is how I spend or how you spend each 10-minute block of your day. Is the greatest diagnostic regarding how much of your daily life is a sacrifice to God versus how much is a daily sacrifice to yourself. I use this idea of a 10-minute increment because as a lawyer, this is drilled into my subconscious. I realize for the rest of you guys, this is not true. I, as a defense lawyer, as a trial lawyer who bills my time to big corporations, I keep track of my time in 10-minute increments. I bill my day in 10-minute increments, 10 minutes for writing a letter, 10 minutes for taking a phone call, 10 minutes times, you know, 10 for being in court all day, whatever it may be. I bill in 10-minute increments. That keeps me thinking about my day in little 10-minute blocks of my little time of 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there and 10 minutes there. What I discovered in applying this text in my life is when I approach my spiritual life the same way I approach my legal life. It got real serious really quick because I had a whole bunch of time that was wasted, right? Time checking out the news, time checking out the weather, time checking out how bad COVID is in Houston, time checking out all this and that, time talking to those I love, time talking to those that I work for, those that work for me, just all kinds of different things. And what I discovered as a diagnostic was that if I would look at my life, just take an hour, take an hour any time of the day. And say, how did I spend those six 10-minute increments? Did I spend any of that in prayer? Did I spend any of that looking at a Bible verse? Did I spend any of that just reflecting and praising God for something that happened that day? Did I spend any aspect of those six 10-minute blocks doing anything that was sacrificial of me to God? The sad indictment for most of us is the way our day is scheduled. We may have a little prayer in the morning, a little quiet time in the morning. We may have some prayer around, some meals. We may have some prayer at nighttime. But for most of us, we suck. We're really, really bad at it. 
And that means we've got to focus on these 10-minute increments. We've got to focus on how our day looks and ask ourselves diagnostically, am I sacrificing? Not what's my wish list, not what's my want list, but am I sacrificing a part of these six 10-minute increments in every hour to God in some way, sacrificing my time, my thought, my prayers? Now, how do I apply this? We apply this in verse 2, and this was our, our uh, memory verse this morning. Don't be conformed to this age. The, the verse Butch put up on the screen had the translation, don't be conformed to this world. They're referring to the same thing. The world, the age is a reference to the path that we're on. And our Greek word here for conformed means to make like. Okay, to make like is, is a scheme or schematazio in Greek is basically saying, I'm going to have a system of, of, of being like the rest of the world. That's having a New Year's resolution like the rest of the world, having a you know six, 10-minute increments like the rest of the world. I, I'm just living a life just like the rest of the world. It says, don't be conformed and just simply do what everybody else is doing. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this application of how I live a sacrificial life means I got to have a metamorphosis. I got to have something that's different than what I currently am, and it's not a matter of willpower. My Greek word here, I love, because it has such an obvious Greek root base in our English word of metamorphosis. Metamorpho in Greek is to change, to be transformed. And metamorpho is a really critical word because it describes a complete transformation without changing in kind. Illustration, caterpillar, butterfly. It's the same thing, but there is a complete metamorphosis. Caterpillar doesn't look like a butterfly, doesn't walk, doesn't fly, doesn't do all kinds of things. The same, it's a complete transformation while it's still the same kind of thing. My caterpillar just becomes a butterfly. So my idea here of a metamorphosis is it is a total change, a total transformation from that which I had before. So it's significant, it's radical, it's really significant. The other thing you've got to understand about this word is it is passive. It is not a matter of willpower. For the caterpillar, the caterpillar doesn't say it's time to become a butterfly. It happens by external forces uh, inside of its DNA. With us as human beings, it means it's voluntary. It means we've got to yield. As I've got up on the screen, it means the transformation takes God's help. It takes a spiritual DNA transformation just like the caterpillar to the butterfly. And for us, it simply requires submission. I just have to yield. God, I need a new mind, a new way to think, a new way to approach, a new way to think about my six-minute increments during each uh, uh, block, or ten-minute increments during six blocks of the day or the hour. And what you've got to realize is an application is that not everyone will understand your desire to transform. Most of the world does not understand your desire to transform. It's okay, as I set up on the screen, it's not their journey to understand. The idea here of changing your mind is real important because it is not simply having change for change's sake. It's not saying it's a new year, therefore I need a new house. It's a new year, therefore I need a new job. It's a new year, therefore I need a new something else. 
a new relationship, a new something, a new hobby, a new body, whatever it may be. It is not a matter of change for change's sake. It is a matter of submission and yielding to God for what he wants and how he's going to have us do this. Now, why do I say that? Because the way this verse ends, he says, I got to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And the point, the so that is not that I can be happy. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say so that I can be a better man or woman. It doesn't say that. It does not say so I can be a better husband, a better employer, a better father, grandfather, spouse, whatever it may be. That is not what it says. It says so that I can discern, I can understand what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, if I were going to add some extraneous English words to give this a little more meaning, I would say so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God for your life. Because that's the context. So it's not me transforming to be something different just for the sake of being different. It's not me saying I'm going to change radically this aspect of my life. I was going down this path and I'm saying, nope, I'm going to play God and I'm now going to go this way. It's not what it's saying. It's saying I'm going to yield so that I can transform, so that I can become more like the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Okay? So let me apply that real quick. Once again, the conjunction and is important. These are not synonyms. You read them real quick. You just group them all together. Good, pleasing, perfect will of God. Okay. If you look at them individually, they're significant. Good means what he's intended for our betterment. Pleasing is not pleasing to us. It's pleasing to him because we're in conformity. So I'm good. I'm, the, I'm becoming the model he's intended. I'm pleasing. It's his intended model, and I'm just trying to yield myself into it. And it's the perfect will of God. That is saying God does not make mistakes. I may not understand why I need to stay in something. I may not understand why I have to be on a path that he wants me to be on that I just don't get. I may not understand the different things he's doing, but if I am finding myself in his will for my good, in his will that's pleasing to him, if it's in conformity with his will, it's going to be his perfect will. doesn't matter if I don't understand it. doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. doesn't matter if I'm scared to death. does not matter if I have no thought that I can do what he wants me to do. It just says, I'm going to do that which scares me. I'm going to do that which is outside my comfort zone. Now, let me apply this really fast. And as I said earlier, the application here of Romans or Hebrews chapter 13 and Romans chapter 12 is all of this is very individual. At this point of the lesson, at this point of trying to figure out our New Year's Bible verse, we got to get really serious about our willingness to transform, our willingness to go where we've not gone before, our willingness to do something we haven't done before, and then apply that. Now, I'm going to show you a video that is the introduction to the application of this point. The video is just going to be some pretty cool drawing. And the reason I chose this, I wanted to highlight a member of our class, and I wanted to highlight how the application of what I'm about to show you plays out in real time in Romans chapter 12. We have a member of our class who's a professional artist. She's a, a, a painter, a drawer, does all kinds of cool art. 
the video that we're going to put up on the screen is a drawing that she made of Jesus. Celeste Rickard, who's a member of our class, has a five-minute video that I'm going to show you that is 25 hours of drawing compressed into five minutes. You'll see this image of Jesus come up on the screen, and then I'm going to show you the application. So the video is just the background for how I'm going to apply this, but Butch is going to show us a five-minute video, uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about how to apply this. The purpose of that was to apply the lesson. That's giftedness, right? Admittedly, 99.99% of us can never even come remotely close to that, right? right? The rest of us are doing stick figures. That's awesome, right? You view the things you're gifted at with the same nonchalance professional artists can do a portrait like that. The rest of the world looks at you and says, wow, I don't get how you're doing that. I don't understand how you can be spiritually gifted like that. I don't know what your motivation. And to you, it's like, eh, that's just what I do. Whatever God has called you to do becomes easy for you because that's your giftedness. That's the identification of what your giftedness is. So just like a professional artist can draw a portrait and say, that's just what I do, you've got a spiritual aspect of it. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What I want to do by way of application to apply this lesson is let you kind of know the rest of the story that she shared with me about kind of what happened after the, the drawing took place. Because obviously she could repeat that. She could do prints of it. She could do all kinds of things. But she did something really, really cool. And I want to apply this as kind of a tangible reminder as you think about Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 going forward this week. Because the application for you is, what am I going to sacrifice of myself to transform my mind. Okay, that's the diagnostic we're all going to ask ourselves. Romans 12, 1 and 2, what am I going to sacrifice of myself in order to transform my mind? Less self-centered, less my will, less my path. What's God's will, a good, perfect, pleasing will? The rest of the story are the little cards. And I'm going to hand one of these out to every single one of you. For those of you that are watching remotely and you come back next week or two weeks from now, we'll keep a couple of these around. We'll give you one when you come back. But she took these cards, she had them printed up, and she put a little prayer on the back. Could have been a Bible verse, but she chose a prayer for specific reasons. She can share with you one-on-one -on -one if you want. But the prayer says, the light of God surrounds you. The love of God enfolds you. The power of God protects you. The presence of God watches over you. Wherever you are, God is. That was a prayer her grandmother taught her, and this has become her way of witnessing to the world. Now, she could sit down with somebody and say, hey, you want to watch a cool five-minute video? That's a pretty cool way to witness. Or she can say to a waitress in a restaurant with their tip, here's a card. She can say to somebody on an airplane, here's a card. She can say to somebody at the mall, here's a card. She tells me she's given away tens of thousands of these all over the world just because she had a moment where her pastor at the time motivated her to do the drawing on the video. And then she started to think, how do I sacrifice? How do I give? How do, what, what's God's will to do with this? Surely this isn't just a painting to hang in some church somewhere or somebody's house that wants to buy it, she said, what do I do with this? 
and she had the cards. So I'm going to pass out the cards and then finish the lesson with the application being our application in our own lives of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But you want to pass a few of these out? And everybody gets one. If you want some more, you can see the artist and she'll take care of you. And if you're not here, we'll get you cards next week. Let me end with a couple of application points on this. First application point, a quote from one of my favorite writers, Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband Jim Elliot was killed uh, in the early 1960s uh, down in South America uh, as a missionary. Elizabeth said, this year, let us dissolve all of our hopes into a single hope to know Christ and be found in him. May this be the year to desire a radically transformed, deeper, truer, knowing Christ is our all-sufficient one. The reason I showed you the video this morning was this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. What her vision of what Jesus looked like was her, but for all of us, we've got to ask the question, what does Jesus look like in my life? What does he look like to me? What does he look like in my work, in my home, in my relationships, in my whatever the fill in the blank is for how you do your life? So if the question is, what does Jesus look like in your life? The purpose of today's little videotape was to make, make you and I reflect on what does Jesus look like for me in my law practice? What does Jesus look like with me with two college age, grad school age kids? What does God look like with my teaching ministry to you guys and other people that I teach? What does God look like in all the different areas of life? And I've got to have an answer to that. You've got to have an answer to that. The purpose of the cards is just simply a motivation to think how one purpose a person applied it in their lives, given your giftedness, given your calling, given what Jesus looks like for you, how do you apply it in your life? Last point, God can give you all that love you're missing. He can be your company whenever you feel alone. He can offer you his hand to help you stand he is the answer. He can give you happiness and fix your struggles, but first you need to give him all of you. I end on this slide because this is the encapsulation of Hebrews 13. It's the encapsulation of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. All that stuff we want is embodied in Matthew 22. I love him with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul. How do I do that? By the yielding and the transformation, the metamorphosis of my mind. Not because I want to be more healthy, I want a new year body, I want a new year job or house or whatever it is may be in my wish list. That's not the focus. My focus is to see Jesus in a different way as it relates to my yielding so that he can use me to change a world that needs to be changed. Before any of us can change the world that needs to be changed, the metamorphosis starts right here. Our mind, we have to yield our mind, the transformative of our mind, the metamorpho, the transformative of our mind is our yielding to him, his changing of us, his making us in from the caterpillar into the butterfly, so that we can have a year that's not our wish list of the new year, but his wish list for us. So for one person in class, we had some cards that get passed out all over the world. God's got something different for you. 
in the weeks to come as you apply this. Tell me your story. I'll work it into a lesson because your transformation, just like this morning, can be an illustration and encouragement and motivation for somebody else. And don't get intimidated because you say, well, I'm not a gifted artist or I'm not a gifted Bible teacher. I'm not a gifted you know, witness or in my faith. God has gifted you in something. The question is, how has he gifted you and what are you doing tomorrow, next week, next month? As God applies that in your life, tell me your story real briefly. I'll work it into a lesson and that will encourage all of us better. Next week, if we're going to get back into John. It's John chapter 18. We're going to do Peter's denial. Peter's denial has got some awesome application for us because it's easy for us to look down our nose and say, how could Peter deny Christ? We do it all the time. It's going to be a lot of application next week. You're going to enjoy it. Join us by video. Join us in person. Uh, hopefully it's going to be good. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time to come and study your word this morning. We thank you for the uh, sharing and the motivation and the encouragement of the video that we got to see and the cards we get to hold to remind us that the application of Romans 12 is not just to make us different for the sake of being different. The application of Romans 12 is to make us different, to touch people in the world. Just like Hebrews chapter 13 says, to make it our praise to God and say, thank you for the giftedness you've given me. I'm going to do good for others and I'm going to reach those who need it. And as we apply Hebrews chapter 13 and Romans 12, we ask you, God, to transform us, to be a metamorphosis, to change us from the caterpillar into the butterfly you want each of us to be, not for some New Year's resolution, but so that we can change the world by letting you change us first. It's for your power, your honor, your glory until we're here together again in the future. We ask all these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Happy New Year. See you next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.